All right. If you got your Bible, um, find the book of Acts. <laughs> We've been there a lot. Chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So tonight we're, we're finishing up a, a two-part series on the, on the worship of the church. So we're taking this, if you're new to CBS this year, we're taking this whole fall and uh, to think through what the scriptures teach about the church and the importance of the church. Come back in the spring, we're going to be studying through some of the Psalms, just so you know that. Uh, so the church, and we've already thought through so far this semester the importance, of, the importance and the necessity of the local church in your life as a Christian. It's not just a suggestion, that's just an absolute fact. It's not just important, it's necessary. Necessary. We've talked about the purpose of the church and the people of the church and the design of the church and still to come, we're going to think, take a couple of weeks on, the, on some of the history of the church both the church in persecution and the church in power, when it's been prosperous times, when it's been persecuted times. We're going to talk about the struggle of the church in the world. Brother Al's going to come here on November the 6th and talk about the mission of the church. Surprise, surprise. Samuel Alto Jackson Jr. And, uh, and then ultimately the, the triumph of the church. I've, I've, I've enjoyed this series so far. I hope, you, I hope you have too. My hope is that you've already come to, to think a little more deeply and with a little more clarity about God's purpose and design for the church and, and, and for the, the role that the local church plays in your life and the importance of church membership, not just church attendance, but, but committed membership, covenant membership. This is not our idea, it's God's. And the importance of knowing your gifts and and. and Living out those gifts in service, in selfless service in the, in the church. We've talked about that. But I said last week, and I'll, I'll reiterate it again tonight, that out of, the th- out of all the things that we're going to say, I mean, honestly, I'm, and I mean this honestly, I think out of all the things we're going to say, even what Brother Al's going to come talk about, the mission of the church, I think what we're talking about last week and this week probably are the high watermark is the is the most important things we're going to talk about because he's going to talk about the mission of the church but you know john piper in his great book that i commend to you let the nations be glad he says missions exist because worship doesn't but there is a day coming when missions will cease to exist but worship will never cease right so missions is fancy word penultimate worship is ultimate and um, everything, you know, everything else we've talked about, practically everything else we've talked about is going to come to an end one day. But not, not the worship of the church. Even one day the local church is going to go away because in heaven it'll be all the redeemed together, but what we'll be doing, we'll be worshiping. And uh, so worship, the worship of the church is something that will never come to an end. There's no doubt, though, that on that day... Uh, in heaven, our worship won't look exactly like it does here now, if you think about that, um, because there, unlike here, we will be in the very presence, the unmitigated, un, uh, well, I don't want to say unmediated, because Jesus is still our mediator in heaven, um, unfiltered glory of God on that day, the one that Paul described in 1 Timothy 6. He who is the blessed and only, there he is, after the hyphen. He who is the 
the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. That's true of us now. We haven't seen, nor can we see. Can I, my little sinful self see him in his unveiled glory? But John says that the day is coming that when Christ returns, he says, beloved, we're God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we, we shall see him as he is, and we will be like him because of that. And I can only imagine that on that day, our worship of him will look a little different than it does now. Worship by faith, by definition, is not worship by sight. Um, but our worship by faith, here and now, is the necessary means and the necessary prelude to that worship on that day. So for that reason, to say it again, um, these are perhaps our most two important weeks thinking about worship. This is part two tonight of this we talked a little bit we began this last week we've already covered the we got the first half of it under our belt let me just review a little bit about what we said last week to get our bearings and then we'll read this passage in acts um yeah yeah so last week i said we're all worshipers all the time we're all worshipers all the time and the truth is and i'm, I'm, I'm trying to put all we said last week in just a tiny little nutshell the truth is we're all worshipers and, and, and the fact is we are moved, we as people are moved more by our loves and more by our desires than we are moved by what we think in our minds. That's why, and that's not to say we're never moved by our thoughts, it's not that it never trickles down that way. You can't even love something you don't know about, for example, um, but uh, more, fun, more, more fundamentally than, than that, we are creatures of desire, and, and we're moved by our desires more than what we know. That's why there's so often such a disconnect between what we know and what we do. I know this to be right, but I don't do it. I know this to be wrong, but I still do it. Why? Why? Because we wanted to. We wanted to. That's why. Uh, we 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 uh or we didn't want to do it so it came down to our desires what we wanted what we loved what we desired most we always do what we want to do always there's never a moment where you didn't do what you most wanted to do think about that here's what the 17th century french philosopher and mathematician blaise pascal famously said he said all men seek happiness this is without exception whatever different means they employ they all tend to this end the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views the will never takes the least step but to this object this is the motive of every action of every man even of those who hang themselves always do what we want to do most at any moment you know sometimes it feels like I did something I didn't want to do, but there was something in that moment that tipped it over the edge that you did it. Right? So we do what we want. We worship what we want. But that begs the question, why do we want what we want? That's the question it begs. If we always worship 
If we always do and we always worship what we want, it begs the question, why do I want what I want? What, if anything, is influencing my desires? That's the question. The answer to that question we gave last week is this. More fundamentally than being a creature of desire, we are creatures of habit. More fundamentally than being a creature of desire, we are creatures of habit. We're moved, yes, we're moved by our desires, but our habits move our desires. You get that? And I said last week, we are creatures of habit, and habits shape our desires, and then our desires shape our worship. But think through that. If our desires shape our worship, and our habits shape our desires, then our habits shape our worship. Okay? say that again if our desires shape our worship but our habits shape our desires then our habits shape our worship our habits are some of the most important things about us because they shape who we are they shape what we love and therefore what we worship wrong habits wrong habits produce wrong loves which produce wrong worship and the bible calls that idolatry that's how we become idolaters and news news reliefs we are all idolaters every one of us in this room so we have to pay careful attention to the habits we build into our lives because they're creating our loves they're creating our desires and they're therefore they're creating what we love most which is what we worship so that's the first biblical truth i introduced to you last week the first biblical truth is we worship what we love most and our habits create our loves. That's the first truth. Second truth tonight, second fundamental biblical truth tonight is we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Our habits shape our desires. Our desires then shape our worship and we become like what we worship. For good or bad. Uh, there's a great book on uh, a biblical theology of worship and idolatry even. By a guy named G.K. Beale. And he said this same thing in much a more poetic way. He says, we resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. Remember what James K.A. Smith said last week. The things we do when we gather for worship, the things that we do aren't just things we do. They're doing something to us. And that's a fact. Where do we see this in the Bible? Because that sounds good, but do we see that in the Bible? I think we see it in a lot of places. But here's one very clear place um, that we see this truth, that we resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration, we become like what we worship. Hold your place here in Acts 2. We'll come back to it in a minute. Turn back to Psalm 115. It'll be on the screen as well. But Psalm 115. And in this psalm, in the early part of it, the psalmist is comparing those who worship God to those who worship idols. And look at what he says beginning in verse 4. Beginning in verse 4, he says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, 
eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's a sobering passage. What does it mean they, we become like them? What does it mean that we become like the idols we worship? Well, think about this passage. What's the psalmist saying? These idols, they look alive, but they have no life. They look alive. Mouths, eyes, ears, noses, hands, feet. They look alive, but they can't speak, see, hear, smell, touch, or walk. They're lifeless, despite what they look like. Shiny on the outside, dead on the inside. They can't do anything. They look good, it's attractive, it's dead. That's what an idol is. And the psalmist says those who make these idols, those who trust in these idols, those who love these idols become just like them in the sense that we look alive but they're deadening to us. We're spiritually deadening to us. They dull us. When we worship idols... We have plenty of idols. We got plenty of idols. We probably have one on our person right now. Our phone. We grow to love them more. Just try to go a day without it. And we grow just as spiritually dead as it is. Right? So tonight we come to think about the practices of our worship. The question is, are, are the habits of our life and the habits when we gather for worship, are they life-giving or deadening? We're going to talk mainly about the habits and practices of our worship when we come together. But the same will apply to the, to the habits we ingrain into our lives every day. Here's what we find over and over in Scripture. When we think about what is, a, what is life-giving, Jesus once asked his disciples after he gave some hard sayings and some of the people stopped following after that. Jesus looked at his 12 and he said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter spoke up in John 6 and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And that same Peter, we looked at Acts chapter 5 this past Sunday when he was arrested and was in prison and an angel came and delivered him out of that prison miraculously. In the middle of the night, that angel told him in Acts 5.20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. See, in a pattern, Jesus prayed to the Father on the night before his crucifixion, and he prayed and he said, sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. So sanctifying words, life-giving words, words of eternal life in Christ. The point I'm making is that in our daily life, and especially when we gather for worship, Scripture has to be in the center of it. That's, that's life-giving. I, I tell you guys all the time, when I, when I, especially when I'm, I'm sitting down with guys who are struggling with different things, and, I, I'm, and they're struggling with things in their mind, I say, memorize Scripture. Words are life-giving. These words are life-giving. Yeah. It helps me when my mind is going somewhere when it, where, it, where it 
doesn't need to go to pull it back to a neighborhood of Scripture that I have tucked away in my mind. Paul, an apostle, called to be an apostle. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's life-giving. And that, 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 that makes, helps me see whatever I was tempted about to think about five minutes earlier. helps me to see it for what it is. It's life-giving. Remember the definition that we talked about last week. Biblical worship is the affection of our hearts expressed according to God's word in response to God's supreme word. That's what worship is. It's the, it's the, the affection of our hearts expressed according to God's word in response to God's supreme worth. Last week, we spent most of our time on the perimeter of that definition, talking about the affection of our hearts in response to God's supreme worth. That was last week. But as we come to think about the practices of the church, when it gathers for worship, we need to focus on the center of that definition. Namely, that biblical, the, that biblical worship is the affection of our hearts expressed according to God's word in response to God's supreme worth. The emphasis on it is on expressed according to God's word. And we need to tease out what all that means. And in my mind, I mean two, mean, I mean two things by that. I mean by uh, expressed according to God's word. I mean according to the commandment of God's word. That's one, thing I, that's one way I take that. When I say expressed according to God's word, I mean according to the commandment of God's word. But secondly, saturated with God's word. And we need to... Think about these two ideas more deeply. What does it mean to worship according to the commandment of God's word? And what does it look like for our worship to be saturated by God's word? All right, so as you flip back to Acts 2, if you haven't already gone back there, I want to think first about the duty of our practices. That work, that, that's worshiping according to God's commandment. He's commanded us. We have a duty to practice these things. And then secondly, the direction of our practices, which is our, our worship saturated with his word. So before we dive into these things, let's read this passage. We've read it a, a thousand times. It's okay. Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, I need your help tonight to teach. I do I do every time I stand here. Sometimes I feel it more deeply than others. I feel it tonight. I need your help to teach. To teach um, passionately. To say what you would have me to say. Say only what the scriptures say and warrant to be said. So this word that we just read, the words we will read, they are your inspired and errant sufficient, clear, 
authoritative and necessary word. And I need your spirit to speak in me and through me, through this word. Give us eyes to see the truth where it is to be seen. Give us minds to understand these things. Give us hearts to receive and embrace and love these things. And then give us wills to live out that which we love. Give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is going to be our primary passage, but like we've already done today and we're going to do um, like we did last week, we're going to look at several other passages over the course of this time. But let's think first about the duty of our practices. I said that in our definition of, of biblical worship, that, our, that is, it is the affection of our hearts being expressed. Worship is not just an affection in your heart. It is affection expressed. It is expressed according to God's word, meaning, first of all, that it is expressed in the way that he commands us to express. In the way that he commands us. That's, that's according to God's word and commandment. In worship, we are to approach God in worship and gather together in worship and practice our worship of him in the way that he tells us to. in the way that he's commanded us to. That may sound funny to somebody who's prone to say things like, well, I like to worship God in this way. Or, this is how I prefer to worship God. Well, y'all might have seen the, the meme going around for a while from something Francis Chan said when somebody visited his church uh, and afterward told him, I didn't really like the worship today. To which Francis Chan replied, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. Now that's a, it's kind of a cheeky response. But it gets to something really important. Specifically, remember who we're worshiping. Remember who we're worshiping. Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, shows that we worship God as he has laid out to us for us to worship him. I don't think it's purely accident. I don't think so. That the first description we're given here in Acts 2.42 is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the first thing that they were said. We'll say a lot more about that in the, in the second point, but it's pertinent here too that their worship was according to the apostles' teaching. The the, they worshiped in the way that Scripture said, and that, and that truth is all over the Old Testament, all over the Old Testament. The classic example in the Old Testament of the truth I'm talking about is an episode mentioned in Leviticus chapter 10. If you haven't read Leviticus in a while, gear up and read it. If I could recommend something to you, if you're going to read Leviticus, read it all in one sitting. You might think I'm crazy. But I promise you, if you sit down and you read Leviticus from front to back in one sitting, it'll be the best way you've ever read Leviticus. You'll see re repetition, you'll see themes that come up, and it'll be the richest experience you ever had with the book of Leviticus. One sitting. But in Leviticus chapter 10, there's this episode mentioned about Nadab and Abihu, who are the sons of Aaron, Moses' brother. 
And it says they were priests, and, and Le- Leviticus 10.1 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took censer, his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire. Some, the King James, I think, says strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. That's the problem. That's why it was, it was unauthorized. He hadn't commanded them to do this. What happened to them? God struck them dead. God struck them dead. They tried to draw near to God in a way that God had not commanded them to draw near to Him. And in verse 2, they died because of it. Fire from heaven consumed them. Verse 3, God says to Aaron through Moses, "Um, uh, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron held his peace when his two sons just died. And later in Leviticus 16, just a few chapters later, on the Day of Atonement, when it's talking about the Day of Atonement, when it describes that day, even Aaron is told that he can't come into the holy place in the temple anytime he wants. He can only come once a year when God allows him and only in the way that God allows him. The point here is that we are to draw near to God only in the way that he has said, draw near to me. That's made clear also in the Old Testament in the first and second of the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? What's the second commandment? Graven images, right? And often that second commandment is, is interpreted as in, don't worship idols. Well, that isn't completely untrue. But if that's all that was meant by the second commandment, then it's not really any different than the first commandment. First commandment, don't have any other gods. Second commandment, no really. Don't have any other gods. But fundamentally, the second commandment is is saying that God is to be worshipped as He commands. The first commandment is that we are to worship Him and no other God. And the second commandment is how we are to worship Him. We are not to picture Him in any way. We are not to image Him in any way. Because all we have at, at, at our disposal to, in order to picture Him, in order to have an image of Him, are created things. We can, we, all we have at our disposal to, to have any kind of image of God are cre- things He created. And He's not a created thing. He's the Creator. And therefore, anything we use to image Him is misrepresenting who He is. God is holy as well as merciful and gracious. but So in His mercy and grace, He invites us as sinners to come and worship Him, but in His holiness, He says, here's how you're to come. And when we come in the way that He commands us to come, we honor Him as holy, and we protect ourselves. Protect ourselves from what? From misunderstanding who He is. And that's exactly why when Nadab and Abihu drew near to God in a way that they decided instead of as God told them. He says, in that verse right there, he says, I'll be, I will be sanctified. I will be glorified in the eyes of all the people. 
What does he mean by, what does God mean by I will be sanctified? He means I will be recognized and set apart as holy by the people. So in the Old Testament, we're constantly reminded of this. We, we don't come to God as we decide. We come to God as he tells us. And only in that way. But is that, is that, is that um, simply the, the strict character of God in the Old Testament? God's different in the New Testament? No. And at the most fundamental level, Jesus himself said, I'm the way. I'm the way and the truth and life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. God commands how we're to draw near to him, and he's drawn near to us in Christ Jesus. And he's told us that the only way we can draw near to him in worship is through him. And in fact, Jesus in John 10, 1, in the same, one, in the same chapter of John 10, where he says, I'm the good shepherd, he says, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. God is holy. He's the creator. We're the creature. And that he made a way at all. For a sinner to draw near to him is merciful beyond imagination. And he, he's made a way through Jesus Christ. And once we come to him in repentance and faith through Jesus Christ, we still worship him as he commands. Right? Because he's still holy. He is still the creator and we're still the creature. Redeemed and forgiven? Sure, but still the creature. So we're to worship him when we come together, careful to do what he commands us to do. Not because he's an ogre, but because he knows what will bring us most joy. Because it will bring us to him and not to some idol of our imaginations. So what has he commanded us to do in our worship? Well, it won't surprise you. It's the simple things. What he's commanded us to do and our worship is to read the scriptures, to pray together, to sing together, to hear the preaching and teaching of his word, and to observe the sacraments that he's given to us. Voila. Each of those commandments is given to us in the scriptures. Each of those things that I just mentioned. Those are the things that in the scriptures we have specific commands from God to do. Read the scriptures, pray together, sing together, hear the preaching and teaching of God's word, and keep the sacraments. Baptism and Lord's Supper, by the way. So each of those are commands. That's, we're to obey it because that's how he's told us to come. But his word, his word makes clear that our, that's our duty in worship, but it's, it's also the directions he gives. It's, his his, his the scripture should saturate all of these things. Let me just give you quickly a good way to think about what we should practice when we come together for worship especially the how the word is to direct our worship our aim as a church should be to read the word pray the word sing the word preach the word see the word by see the word i mean that's what we're doing when we see a baptism or the lord's supper we're seeing the word acted out before our very eyes we're not to do these things just because the word tells us to, but they are to be filled with the word when we do them. That makes sense? We don't, we don't just read, pray, sing, preach, and do these things just because the word tells us to, but when we do them, they'll be filled and saturated with the word. So we're to, we're to, to read and, pre and preach and hear the word preached 
when we come together and worship. Paul said, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. I, yeah, that, that's why, honestly, when I, whenever I teach, if I've got a long passage of Scripture to teach, we do this most every Sunday because if I'm trying to teach a whole chapter of the book of Acts, especially if I come up short and I, I have to teach more than a chapter like I did this, this past Sunday, I read the whole blessed thing because that's way more important than anything I've got to tell you. Right? That is, that is the thing through which the Spirit is speaking. So we're to publicly read the Scriptures and then preach and teach from them. If you ever come to a church, here or anywhere else, and the preacher reads a passage of Scripture and his Bible sits here like this, right? and, he, and he talks, and he might talk really well, really, really just really eloquent speaker. But he puts it down and he talks for 40 minutes. Leave. Leave. Well, maybe not right in the middle of it. Don't come back. Believe me, there's a lot of places like that. God's design is that we read it publicly. Is it, is it surprising to you that God would... would would change the world and build his church through the most ordinary thing? God's design is that we read it publicly and then dig deeply into it. That's the, um, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. After you read Leviticus in one sitting, read Nehemiah. Maybe not in one sitting, but just read chapter 8. In, in, in chapter 8, it's beautiful. God was sending a revival to the people as they were rebuilding the, the city. And it says they got up early in the morning. They got up early in the morning and they built a platform. Why did they build a platform? Because they were about to have a big, fat, long day of just reading the Bible. They knew that Ezra the priest was here and we want him to read us the law the law of Moses, they built a platform and then they started at 6 a.m. and it says they stood, they stood and listened to Ezra read the law for six hours. Six hours. Man. And it says that as he read, there were people going throughout the crowd uh, basically explaining what they were hearing. Like it says, giving them the sense. When they didn't understand something that Ezra said, they would tell them. And at the, at, at the end of that six hours, it says they fell on their faces and wept. Wept. Just because they were hearing the word. Why, why in this way? Why in the simple reading of the Scriptures? Why in the simple proclamation of the Scriptures? Why this way? So that the church is built on a, on a foundation that's built by the Holy Spirit speaking and moving and working through the simplicity of the Word. Through the simplicity of this. 
This is what you want. This is what you need. This doesn't ever change. I'm telling you. And not through the cleverness of any preacher. Because, man, what happens if the preacher leaves? What happens if the, if the eloquent, flashy-looking preacher gets old and he loses his cleverness? I'm telling you, it happens. It happens. It happens in churches. Live long enough and watch churches. Churches that are built on personalities. The church will be thriving when the preacher is young and he gets old and it dwindles. Because it's built on a personality. It's built on a sham, a show, a mirage. Trust the Word. Trust the Word and not anything else. But we're to pray the Word. When we come, we don't just preach the Word and hear the Word preached and read it. We pray the Word. They did that in Acts. It says also in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the break of bread, and the, the prayers, the prayers. Not just prayer, the prayers. And you, you know through other places in Acts that they're talking about something specific, specific hours of prayer where they went to the temple. That's where they're going to be in the very next chapter. Very next, three, chapter 3, verse 1, they're going up to the temple at the hour of the prayer. That's when they heal the man, at the hour of prayer. And you know when they went to the temple to have pr- to, at the hour of prayer where they're praying with all the other Jews that are still there. They're not, they're not Jews, but they're the same scriptures. These prayers were filled with the scriptures. These prayers were often praying the Psalms. And when you come to Acts chapter 4 and you see an example of them praying for boldness, you see exactly that. Psalm 2 is at the very center of that prayer. Sovereign Lord, this is chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. That's filling it with Genesis 1. Who through the mouth of our father David said by the Holy Spirit, and he quotes Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? I mean, this, they, 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 they haven't even gotten off the ground and they're quoting Scripture in this prayer. Pray the Psalms. That's why in this fall, at least, I, I, I've encouraged you to read through the Psalms together. And I've, I, I've encouraged, I know I've told the Mishkan leaders, I don't know if they're doing it or not, but I've encouraged them to, to demonstrate how to pray through psalms together. What? It's not hard. You take a psalm. You sit around it. You each have this, you, you have this um, book open. Let me just show you. It's not hard. All right, let's just open to a, a random. I open up to Psalm 42. As as a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O God. Father, I confess to you that sometimes that is the way my soul feels. Sometimes it's not. Lord, would, would you please forgive me for that? And tune my heart, as the song says, to sing your praise. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Father, very often we sing about seeing you face to face. And Father, I just cannot imagine 
what that day is going to be like. Lord, help me to long for that day. See you face to face. And not love the things of this world more than I love you. In Jesus' name. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your... I mean, just do you see what I'm saying? You, you read a verse, you pray a verse. You read a verse, you pray what that verse leads you to pray. You're praying through a psalm. And you're praying scripture when you do that. Pray the prayers of the Bible. You have whole written prayers from Paul. And read Paul's letters. He often opens up with a prayer for the church. Read that prayer. Pray that prayer. It's, do you realize what that is? That is a prayer that the Holy Spirit said, here's a prayer. This is a good prayer. Why don't you pray it? And Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, pray then like this. Pray then like this. Pray this is what he's saying. Not just follow this example. Pray this. This is a Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, given prayer. You pray this. It's his will. He'll answer. Pray the word. Sing the word. We sing the word in scripture, in, in worship. We sing it. They did in Acts 2. In Acts 2.47 it says they were praising God. But again, in verse 46 it says that much of this praise was happening in the temple. Day by day attending the temple together. Where If they're, pray, if they're praising God in the temple, it's, it's, it's again, it's singing the psalms what it would have been filled with scriptural truth interestingly as we wrap this thing up think about what paul says in colossians three sixteen. he says to a church let the word of christ dwell in you richly and that southern translation that you is a y'all let the word of christ dwell in y'all richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How are they to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly? Singing. Singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs filled with the word. And finally, we're to see the word when we come into worship together. This is what happens when we see a baptism, when we observe the Lord's Supper. We are seeing, we are acting out God's commandment in Scripture. And, and we're receiving his promises in physical form. And his promises, by the way, we'll talk about this more later, his promises when it comes to these ordinances, these sacraments, his promises are not just made to you personally, they're made to us as his church. And therefore, it's why these blessings of baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be done when we all come together as the church. So, bottom line, it, it matters what we do when we come together for worship. Because we're to come together in the way that he's told us to come. Because he's holy. And then, filled with scripture, the repetition of these things molds us over time 
into the image of Christ. You become like what you worship. You become more Christ-like.